Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, and you can turn to Psalm 130. Psalm chapter 130. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you have a device, you can go to uh, the ESV version of whatever app you have, and you'll be able to find where we're going there this morning. Psalm 130. Well, if this is your first time uh, to the warehouse this morning, there's something I, I kind of wanted to lay out and let you know before we start, is that you're, you're actually giving an accurate picture of, of what the church looks like on a week-to-week uh, basis. Sometimes churches, they do all this crazy stuff on Easter. You come back the next week, it's like, is this the same? I don't remember being here last week for this. But this is, a, this is an accurate picture of what we do every Sunday, meaning uh, this, is, this is the same kind of service, the same kind of sermon that we preach every week. That's not to say that Easter, of course, like I pointed out in the beginning, is, is just like every other Sunday. It, it, it's not, actually. But the message of Easter is contained in every message that we preach and every song we sing every Sunday because this is the good news. And Christians are people whose lives have been transformed by this news. So that's what we're going to be looking into this morning. Having said that, um, you know, I have a, a little bit of a complicated relationship uh, with Easter. Now, having grown up in Southern California, here, here, was the, uh, here was the situation, the sitch, as I like to call it, with Easter, is that it was the one day of the year, the one day, the one Sunday that we went to church out of the year that we actually got dressed up, right? I mean, this is Southern California where pastors are wearing like triple extra large Hawaiian shirts. Nobody gets dressed up there. And you're thinking like, and you still, like, do you think you've turned a corner, Ronnie? Because you clearly haven't even today. But back then, nobody got dressed up. So this was the, this was the one day of the year where, where mom would, would put me in all these stiff clothes and I'd have to tuck in my shirt and I'd have to look like I'm looking right now, just super uncomfortable and, and, and horrible. Um, that's how we approached Easter, right? We got all dressed up. And I, I kind of want to start our service today by like posing that question to you, by asking that question, which is this, how are you approaching Easter today? What's your approach like as you were coming into this warehouse, whether you come here every week or whether this is your first time or whether this is, you know, once or twice a year that you, you make your way into church? How, how are you approaching Easter today? Because you are approaching it. You did come here. You are sitting here. So at some point you were approaching it in a particular way. And then a, a more serious, more level question from that is, what are you doing with this resurrected Jesus that we just sang for about a half an hour about. Now, here's the thing. Most of us have, have gotten dressed. I mean, that, thank you, right? That's like a good thing. Most of us have gotten dressed, even me. And, you know, okay, I did my best here. Big R is trying, right? I'm putting in the effort today. But we also know that getting dressed up, is, it's just wrapping, isn't it? It's just wrapping. It's just a human gift bag that keeps us from getting arrested at the end of the day, right? So, of course, we all dress up on the outside, but did you come dressed up on the inside? That's the question. What I mean by that is, have you dressed up your heart before the Lord this morning? Even though, and we're going to see this in a minute when we dive into Psalm 130, even though the Bible tells us um, that God sees our heart, and he sees it in its most truthful, terrifying, and most naked condition. And we're not fooling anybody. I remember the time I was getting ready to preach a sermon at another church, and somebody, thank you, came running up to me and said, hey, brother, he didn't even know my name. He said, I just wanted to let you know that your pants are unzipped, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I thought I was dressed, but not really, right? Not really the way I needed 
to be dressed. So as we read Psalm 30, what we're going to hear is the prayer of a man who literally undresses his heart before the Lord because he's come to a place where he finally knows the truth about himself and the truth about God. And this is the conclusion that he comes to. He comes to this conclusion, that because God loves and redeems his people, a forgiven person who fears God will approach him in humility and then have the opportunity to wait for him in hopeful expectation. Professor of Southern Seminary, a guy named Bruce Ware, he says it like this, those redeemed by grace, Christians, will walk in God's ways with joyous reverence and a determination to turn from evil. So in other words, the way God redeems a person, follow me here, is so plentiful, it's so all-encompassing that it actually begins to change their heart, which in turn changes the way they live their life. Now, there's an alternative to this, and the alternative to this is that we don't approach God humbly and we don't receive that hopeful expectation, but we approach God thinking maybe that we're owed something. And then maybe because we think we're owed something, we don't really approach him. Or we don't approach him at all because we believe we haven't earned his favor. So some of us have that barrier in that we don't even come to God because those particular things may have caused a barrier in the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about God. This is the dilemma that Psalm 130 answers for us. And let me just say this. If you are someone who has not yet embraced the Christian faith, This is important, what we're going to talk about this morning, because we're going to see what the Bible has to say about these four particular things. Number one, the condition of man. That's you, that's me, that's women, that's mankind. So the condition of man, number two, the character of God. And number three, we're going to unpack why we need to approach God with undressed hearts. And then finally, how Easter gives us the grounding to actually do it. The Bible tells us that because we're sinners... What happens in our sin nature is that we mischaracterize God. We don't think of him rightly. And because we don't think rightly about God, because we mischaracterize him, we also, you know what happens when that happens? We also think wrongly of ourselves. We also believe we're not as bad as we truly are. And you know what's so funny is we do that all the time with people, don't we? I mean, don't you guys do that? Have you ever misjudged someone's character until you met with them and you had a conversation with them and you end up telling your friend or your spouse, like, man, they're nothing like I thought they were. Like, I totally blew that one. How much more do we do that with God? But let's see how this particular writer of this psalm, Psalm 130, approaches God. You can follow along with me. He says this, out of the depths of I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word. 
So we're going to see two things unfold with this particular man who wrote the psalm. The first one is his approach. He has a humble approach to God. And with that humble approach comes the knowledge about the real truth about himself. So with a humble approach to God, we get to know the real truth about ourselves. And secondly, when we've done that, we actually get to face God with a hopeful expectation because we then are learning and knowing the real truth about God. And so part one, a humble approach, knowing the real truth about yourself. So the book of Psalms is actually a prayer book. It's actually a a song book. And this is the prayer or the song, a song of lament of a man who has absolutely, as we just read, as as you can see, has just plunged to the lowest point imaginable, right? This is a man who is battling with what we would call inner demons, right? He's wrestling with the grave reality of his sin. And he's finally, finally hit rock bottom. Now, you got to notice something here. As we read, we're not told what this man's sin is. We're not told how he got to this place. We're just told that he's there. He just launches right into it. Now, some of you have gotten to that place in your life. Maybe you are in that place right now where you can't even remember how you got there, and it doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter anyway. You just know you need help, and all the other helps that you've sought out have proven to be unfruitful. They haven't worked, right? They've collapsed on you. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century pastor, theologian, this is what he said. He made a comment about this. He said, The most horrible depth into which men's soul can descend is sin. It doesn't give an example there. He just says sin broadly. Sometimes we begin on gradual slopes and slide so swiftly, he says, that we soon reach great depths, depths in which there are horrors that are neither in poverty nor sorrow nor even mental depression. So when we finally grasp the real truth about ourselves, that we are sinners by nature who sin horribly, we are finally in a place to approach God in the way that he receives horrible sinners, which is in humble recognition of your true self. The man or woman or teenager or child, I think I just covered every category in this room, right? But the one who humbles themselves before God, what we see in this psalm, is this is the person who's heard by God. The psalmist that wrote this psalm was heard by God. In fact, King David wrote in Psalm 138.6, this is the king, the great king after God's own heart of Israel. He said, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar, afar. So the reason we need to know the truth about ourselves, like this psalmist, is so we go to God and plead for mercy. You might ask, well, what does the psalmist need to plead for mercy for? Well, kind of going back to what we said a minute ago, why does that matter? Why does it matter what he needs to plead to God for? The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He didn't give a bunch of examples. He didn't rattle off a bunch of examples. He just said, we're all sinners and we've all fallen short, right? How many of you guys drink LaCroix? It doesn't matter what flavor you get, it's all the same, right? We know that about LaCroix, right? We drink it every day. Hey, let's try this flavor. Sure. I like the color of the can. That's 
That's an example of our sin. The point is that in this moment, this man knows the real truth about himself. He sees his real need, which is for God to listen to his pleas for mercy there in verse 2. God, hear my voice. And again, not simply just to hear, right? I don't need people just to hear me when I'm in the depths. I need someone to listen to me, to understand, to know the cry of my heart that's coming from the core of my being. And that's what the psalmist is pleading for here. There's also a man named Jonah. And go ahead, turn to Jonah. It's, it's uh, up about, I don't know, nine or ten books to your right. But let's turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah's a man who prayed a prayer just like this after he had had a run-in with God, after running from God, and found himself trapped in the belly of this great fish. So let's read Jonah's prayer to get a sense, again, of what this means to cry out to God from the depths in our distress, finally having this realization of what's come upon me and what's going on. Jonah chapter 2. If you're not there, I'm just going to go ahead and start reading. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is what he said. And notice the similarities between these two prayers. He said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, into the flood surrounded me. And all your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 4, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. And then he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And then he finishes in verse 7 by saying, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay because salvation belongs to the Lord. And then it says in verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's a great image for us on Easter. Um, and by the way, we're going to be hitting the book of Jonah all through the month of, of August, and we'll be really fleshing this out. So what we see happening with Jonah here is like with the psalmist, a guy that has reached the bottom. God appoints a fish to gobble this dude up because he needed to know how badly he needed God to deliver him from his sin. Do you see yourself like Jonah? Do you see yourself like the psalmist? Or are you already thinking, we go this heavy and this dark and this deep on Easter because that's who we are. But when we, but when we get to a place like this, are you already thinking, Ronnie, it's just not, man, it's not that bad. It's, you, you look really dramatic up there, man. What did those three months do to you? It's not that bad. In fact, things are going really good. But the problem with that mindset is that it fails to recognize the nature of your heart, which Jeremiah 17.9 and another Old Testament book says is deceitful, above, capital A-B-O-V-E, all things. Now let's just use some plain language. Let's just have some real talk here. Your heart is the biggest liar in your life. That's what that means, right? It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. Kiddos, it's not your parents. I know they lie sometimes, right? 
Uh-oh. It's not them. It's not them, right? And some of them, again, are liars. But it's not them. None of them lie to you the way that your heart lies to you. So, what are the obstacles then that are preventing you from undressing your heart like the psalmist, like Jonah, and crying out to God from the depths of your sin this morning? Well, what prevents us is our pride. What prevents us is the fear, the mischaracterization we have of God. And you know, I'm like a lot of you, right? When it comes to things like going to the doctor, all right, by way of example here, I don't like going to the doc. Sorry, Zach Watson. I know you're not a doctor officially, but I don't like you. I don't like going to the doc, right? Um, it's a fearful place for me because I'm afraid he or she might uncover an infection or a disease or whatever. But you know what happens? At some point, I become more afraid of not uncovering the problem. This is the place that the psalmist is at right now. Now, look, if God was an evil doctor, I don't know, think of some evil doctor in your life. If God was an evil doctor, if he was the kind of God who lacked mercy, you'd need a different approach. You couldn't approach him the way the psalmist is approaching him. You'd need to find a way to appease him before you could approach him, before you could plead with him for mercy. But God is clearly not that kind of God. And you know what? That might be a hard realization for some of you to imagine. Because some of you have grown up with people you've had to appease your entire life, right? Your entire life. Maybe you had a mother or a father or a teacher or a grandparent. No matter how hard you tried, man, you just could never please them. It was never enough. Good enough was never enough. Maybe you have a spouse right now or a, or a parent or you have a boss just breaks your back no matter how hard you try. You can never please. So you think God must be like that. You might even say, look, I, I get it. I know he's not really like that. But then if we step back and we look at the way you approach God or don't approach him, it would tell us a different story, right? Now here's what's crazy. The psalmist actually tells us in verse 3 that if God kept a list, if he kept a tally of all of your sins, none of us, none of you would have any hope of approaching him with any success. Let me read uh, verse 3 for us again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sin, O Lord, who could stand? So what he's saying here is our sin is so plentiful, the only standing we have before God is that we stand condemned. With God, you've already been caught. With God, we've already been found out. So to try and stand before God and attempt to appease him with some of the good things that we've done, it, it'll, it'll never be enough to counterbalance the sinful nature of our hearts, which are naturally bent from birth against God. In fact, Psalm chapter 1, verse 5 tells us this. It says, hey, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You know, when they mention the wicked... In Scripture, they're talking about us. They're not talking about, like, the guy over there. They're talking about us. They're talking about people who have not yet found redemption through Christ. We will not, we cannot stand before God in our human condition. 
You know, I have never met anybody who gets pumped over performance reviews. Seriously, man. I got good, you know, let me just bring it to another level. I got good grades most of my life in school, and I was never like super excited like the day I got my report card. Ever. Never loved that. But here's what's interesting. Christians are the only people who do not receive performance reviews from God. As much as we think he's doing that. Because they've discovered the real truth about themselves. And that's led them to plead for mercy and forgiveness. And this leads us to our second discovery in Psalm 130, which is this. The first we have, the first, the first one we just went through is that we have to come before the Lord with a humble approach by knowing the real truth about ourselves. The second is this. Those who approach God in humility will then be able to live in hopeful expectation. Why? Well, because they know the real truth about God. Look what it says, verses 4 through 6. But with you, it says, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And then he says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. See the way he opens up verse 4? But with you. But with you, there is forgiveness. The most hopeful two words in all of Scripture are basically, but God. In fact, we read another example of this in Ephesians 2, when the Apostle Paul reminds the church in Ephesus of who they really are. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to say, but God, who is rich in mercy, delivered you. But God. So when we know the real truth about ourselves, it leads us somewhere. It leads us to repentance. And repentance leads us to knowing the real truth about God, which is that he has mercy and grace for repenters. Here's what's interesting. The end game here, according to the psalmist, of being forgiven is so that we fear God. And you look at that and you go, fear? You just kind of go, well, that, that sounds odd. That's, that's the takeaway from this? That those who receive forgiveness will fear God? What do we mean when we say fear in the Bible? Here's what we mean. Pastor Ray Ortland has this quote. He says this about fear. He says, holy fear is not terror or dread of harm. But he says, it's proper and worshipful regard for all God is in his wisdom, power, holiness, mercy, and love. So that's what fear is. It's standing back and seeing the fullness of everything God is and having a worshipful regard for it. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 tells us, in actuality, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's what fear is. But when we want to know where fear takes us, we go to Proverbs 1.7 and we learn that it takes us to wisdom. Now here's the thing. If you don't regard God as being who he really is, you're going to live your life under a different rule, aren't you? You're going to live your life under the rule of your own heart. Meaning whatever you think is right, whatever you determine is cool, that's how you're going to live, which is the world's mentality and it's the world's morality. But because a forgiven person has a heart that's been opened by God to the real truth now of who God is, 
they can live in hopeful expectancy. Now, here's what's interesting. The psalmist equates living in hope with waiting in hope. What we just read in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. I mean, shouldn't this brother be done waiting? Doesn't that seem like an odd follow-up to everything he's going through after receiving that forgiveness? After coming to this place where he now fears God, shouldn't he be done waiting? I mean, he's humbled himself, right? And now he has to wait? Why? Why does this brother have to wait? Because, I knew you were going to ask, because waiting in hope is how a person is assured of their faith in God's promise to make good on his word. Let me just say that again. Waiting in hope is how a person is assured of their faith in God's promise to make good on his word. Now, waiting is hard. We know that. This brother knew that. But it's the only path that leads Christians to becoming people of hope, which is us. So let's unpack just for a minute what we mean by that. We go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11. This is what Hebrews 1, 11 tells us about faith and hope and assurance. It says, now, faith is the assurance, it says, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? So the psalmist is now waiting in hope for things that aren't visible, and then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, he's speaking of our future redemption. And this is what he tells the church in Rome. He says, for in this hope we are saved. Now, this is what he says. So he explains hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Right? Who ho- I, I have chocolate eggs right now at my house. I'm not hoping for chocolate eggs. I've secured them. They're mine right? I'm not hoping for chocolate eggs. Who hopes for what he sees? Then he finishes with this. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And patience kind of matters to God. My wife hates it when I say kind of, but it kind of illustrates the point. Should I retract that statement? I don't want to look at her right now. Patience is important to God for us to grow in. So this is hope. Hope now is waiting in patience for God to fulfill his promises. And then, then, listen, living faithful, obedient lives because we are now assured that God is true and that he is not a liar. Well, how do we know God is not a liar? Because he promised deliverance from sin. And he made good on his promise when he sent Christ to deliver sinners. So now, now, on Easter, 2,000 years later, we wait in hope for that future and final deliverance when Christ returns to make all things new. So until then, your soul, my soul, can wait while hoping in God's covenant promise that he doesn't break. So, man, I went to a small private school for high school. And one of the, the deals was, was that you, you had to pay tuition. I mean, that was my dad's thing, right? But you had to pay tuition or they would eventually not let you come to school anymore. Uh, the other thing was when, when you graduated, you know, you, you stood in a line. I was in a graduating class of nine, don't laugh. And uh, so I'm standing there. You know, the ceremony took four or five minutes. And... Uh, one of the things was, you know, you went up there, you know, they call your name and, you know, they, they hand you the, the diploma. And so everybody's going up and they're, you know, handing them the diploma. And they're like, oh, look, you know, and all that. And I, I get up there 
and, and they hand me the diploma, and I go back to my seat, and I, I take the little ribbon off of it, and I open it up, and it was a blank sheet of paper. And my dad comes up, and he goes, I haven't paid your tuition yet this, this month. That's why it's blank. I said, Pops, you are killing me right now, man. You're killing me. But you paid the tuition, and then you got the diploma, right? It's because it was paid for that you could hope for it. My tuition wasn't paid for. I was hoping for something in vain. Do you see how hope works in the life and the heart of a Christian? We can hope because something has been paid for. In fact, the psalmist gives us a much better image, a much better example than what I just said of this assuring comfort of his soul. He says in verse 6, more than the watchman for the morning. That's how much he hopes. Now, the watchmen were the guards or these, these sentries, if anybody uses that word anymore, who were at the gates uh, or, or the walls keeping watch over the city. They were those guys. But they knew that when morning finally came, all was safe, that their work was done and that they would be free to go home then and rest. So here's what the psalmist is saying. Listen, the certainty of God keeping his word is more sure than even the sun rising in the morning. That's what he's saying. In other words, there's a better chance of the sun not rising in the morning, and I know it's felt that way here the past like three months, than for God to not keep his word. So the psalmist can wait in hopeful expectation, more than even the watchmen who wait for the sun to rise, because his longing for God will be met like a watchman who sees the sun rise. So here's my question. Do you live with this kind of hopeful expectation, not in your circumstances, but in God. Maybe this prayer causes you to realize that you are a person who doesn't wait for anything and therefore doesn't trust God for anything. Let me explain it like this. If we're people who don't have a holy fear, a worshipful regard for all of who God is in his wisdom, power, holiness, mercy, and love, it means this. You will be looking to yourself or someone else to provide all the things that you don't believe God is good for. That's what's going on right there. And then the psalmist does this amazing thing where he kind of comes out of his personal struggle with his sin before the Lord and he reminds all of Israel now of this truth. When we get to verse 7 and 8, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And when we get to the word steadfast love, they recall something. They would have recalled something to the people that he was speaking this to. They would have recalled the time of Moses and the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, we read how, we read how God descends to Moses he comes down in a cloud to Moses and he proclaims this. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the Israelites could count on God's steadfast love because he had already proven his love for them. 
They could count on his redemption because he had proven he would redeem them. Not only that, but they could count on it for the future. The psalmist writes in in verse 8, he will redeem. And he did. And he does. This psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who did come, who did redeem Israel, and not just Israel, but all who humble themselves and turn from self-righteousness. Do you see that this is the depth and the fullness and the plentifulness of God's redemption? And that redemption is applied to us if we approach God with humble, undressed hearts. You have to ask, okay? You have to ask what kinds of things in your own life are you depending on to be that plentiful, to make up for your lack, to cover you. Man, I remember when we first arrived in Ashland eight years ago, we froze to death for only like three or four years, three or four winters, because we didn't buy the right clothing. We need a little help. We're not so bright sometimes, right? You guys can help us with that. We were in denial, like all of you have been this winter, probably. But the reality was we weren't properly clothed. Here's kind of a funny story. So we're in California at 65 degrees. We're on the beach. Again, please don't send me hate emails. But we're on the beach at 65 degrees. And there, they don't understand cold the way us Ohioans understand cold, right? So we're seeing all these women with these full-length, like, North Face jackets just marching up and down the beach. And we're, like, in shorts and T-shirts, right? Like, we've fully become Ohioans now. You, can, you should cheer for that, maybe. But um, I'm joking. Either way, they were covered. They were clothed. But we must undress our hearts before God so that we can become clothed and we can become covered by Him. Isaiah 61, another Old Testament book, the prophet Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. There's no one else that can do it but God. You know, what's interesting is if you were to come to my house Um, The first thing I do when I get home, this is probably a little TMI for you, a little too much info, but the first thing I do when I get home is I put on the most comfortable pair set of clothing I can find. And I would hate for any of you to see what I'm wearing when I'm at home. Some of you guys have kind of snuck in sometimes, and you see me wearing these horrible old raggedy sweats and a horrible old raggedy t-shirt. And my wife half the time is like, dare to dream, Ronnie, why don't we spend like five or ten bucks and get you a new pair of those? I'm like, but I like these but I like these, right? The point is, is that I dress down at home. Listen, if you come to my door, you will see how I really am. I don't want you to see how I really am. I don't want you to see me in that pair of sweats, but that's how I really am. That's me exposed, and that's hard for us. If it's hard for me to do that with a pair of sweats, how much harder is it for us to do that with our hearts, right? But we must undress our hearts before God because only He can cover us adequately. And you know what? Not only adequately, but plentifully. And we know this is true because of Easter. That's why we know this is true. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. Then Paul, who also wrote the book of Ephesians, said, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
Paul also says in Romans 2.4, he says, Do you presume, he says, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing this, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So God is having patience with you wherever you're at today. God has been and is being patient with you, but he's calling you to something. So are we going to continue to presume on his patience? That's what Paul is saying. Because it's, at some point, all the people that are in this church are going to be different people in this church. And not because we've all moved on, but because we've all literally moved on in life and death. The call is not, listen, the call is not to accept Jesus in your heart. I'm sorry if that's how salvation was taught you, but it's wrong. Like it's just a decision you made to bring little old Jesus into your life one time when the time was right. You know how that cheapens everything that we're talking about right now? The call is this, is to repent of your sins so that you become acceptable to God. If it's anything less than that, brothers and sisters, Easter is just another religious holiday with as much significance as Groundhog's Day but without the bunnies and the delicious chocolate. Spurgeon said this, is it not better, listen to this, is it not better to be in the depth hoping in God's mercy than up on the mountaintops boasting in our own fancied righteousness? Is it not better? So this is what we learned. This is what we learned. One, God hears our pleas for mercy. He hears your plea for mercy. Two, God answers your plea, your repentant plea with forgiveness. Three, God grounds your forgiveness in fear of himself, which is how Christians wait in hope for a plentiful redemption. Now, all of this could sound a little cold, all of this could sound slightly cold and intellectual even, except we're dealing with a God, it says, whose love is steadfast, whose love is included and runs through the package. There was this part where we were staying in the central coast where we would turn this corner, driving up the highway, and we would just have this unbelievably like, spectacular view of the ocean because we were right on the coast. And I remember one time we turned the corner and Melissa goes, look at it. It's like infinity. It's like the ocean is infinity. But, but, it, but it's not. The, the ocean isn't, isn't infinite. And yet, here's what's interesting. I, I never woke up worried that somehow the water was all going to dry up. Never once did I wake up and go, oh my gosh, Melissa, we've got to run to the beach because I, I don't know if there's going to be any sea. I never worried. Even more so, the love of God through Christ, which is steadfast. Even more so, our redemption in Christ, which is plentiful. Because here's what Easter is. God sent Jesus to save us from his wrath so that we might not be estranged from him any longer. So will you undress your hearts 
Will you accept the real truth about yourself? Will you believe the real truth about God? Will we receive this plentiful redemption for those of us who are saved, who walk in unbelief? For those of us who are not saved, who walk in unbelief? This is the good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the redemptive work that we have in Christ today on Easter Sunday. We thank you that it's true that if we approach you humbly and we plead for mercy and repentance, that in you there is forgiveness and we will fear you. And by fearing you, we will understand who we are, we will understand who you are, and we will have hope to wait for the day when we will see you, Jesus, face to face. God, grant us, grant us this faith. Lord, let us be a church that is not arrogant. Let us be a church that is not putting on airs. Let us be a church that is not dressing up our hearts every time we show up to this dusty warehouse. Let this be an example of really what's going on that we are people who are in need of your grace and mercy. And when we find it, we know happiness and we know joy because we know you. So God, for those of us who have not yet come to you and pleaded for you, recognized their sin and pleaded you for that mercy, we pray that you would unlock and undress their hearts this morning, that they would do that and that you would show yourself faithful to them as you continue to show yourself faithful to us. Lord, let us be a light of redemptive hope to this community, we pray. In Christ's name, and together we said, amen.